University of Colorado. Burnout among healthcare workers is at an all-time high, and while there's been progress in curbing the COVID pandemic, there seems to be no respite for those working in healthcare. On this episode of See You on the Air, we're talking with Dr. Mark Moss from the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus, who studies burnout syndrome, post-traumatic stress disorder, and wellness among critical care health professionals, specifically ICU nurses. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Mark. I know you're very busy, so we really appreciate the time. Just when we thought the pandemic might be manageable, the Delta variant hit. Can you tell us what this did to already weary healthcare workers? It's a very important question. Part of the stress of a job comes from uncertainty. When you don't know what the next day is going to hold or how busy you're going to be. And that is indicative of working in a hospital or an intensive care unit at a baseline. There's not schedules for people coming into the intensive care unit. So there is this sense of uncertainty. Um, and then the pandemic magnified that. And there's even more uncertainty. I can tell you that when the vaccine was developed and we all started to get vaccinated 10 months ago, I think there was a lot of hope that the pandemic would end or slow down enough that it wasn't as overwhelming as it's been. However, I think the Delta variant and the lack of vaccination among people in our country has taken the hope away from healthcare professionals. We hoped that the pandemic was going to get better. So the Delta variant and other factors have taken the hope away from us. Well, what are some of the long-term effects of burnout among healthcare workers? It's a very important question. There's a typical response to catastrophic events, whether they're tsunamis, earthquakes, or, or pandemics. And in the beginning, there's a great sense of heroicism. This is what we train to do. These patients need our help. This is exactly why I studied in medical school and stayed up at night during residency, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a common vision. People realized that we are here to help patients with COVID. So everyone bonded together behind that common vision. And there was a sense of community. And that's a normal response also, as I said, to earthquakes, et cetera. But then that starts to go away. And there's this prolonged period of what's called disillusionment. And it's fueled by a variety of different factors. Number one is people want to return to normal. And in the beginning of the pandemic, there were signs in our neighborhoods when I would take the dog for a walk that said, we love our healthcare professionals. And it was very comforting to see that. And there's the howl at eight o'clock at night. And, you kind of felt like people were thinking of you and people would ask me when they would see me, how are you doing? How are things going? Thank you so much for what you're doing. It was just nice to know that people cared about you. But I understand that the rest of the world wants to get back to normal, um, but you kind of feel abandoned a little bit. Like everyone else is back to normal. You go to a Broncos game and there's 70,000 people there. And you watch events on TV and the world seems to have gotten back to normal. So that fuels this disillusionment. You feel like saying, hey, there's still 30 people in the intensive care unit that have COVID on ventilators. 
the pandemic's not over. We're still going to work and we're still um, caring for these patients. In addition, what happens is people start to talk and you start to realize that there's inequity in support. This happened in Hurricane Katrina as an example. The state of Louisiana got a lot of support. Everyone talked about New Orleans, but Mississippi was also affected by the hurricane. So then people start to fight a little bit and like, how come they got this and we didn't? And that sense of community starts to erode. So I think those are some of the long-term effects is that people are disillusioned. And when people are disillusioned in their job, they think about leaving. And there was a survey that was done and published in the Washington Post several months ago that surveyed all healthcare professionals from physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists, people that work in the outpatient setting, not just intensive care units, so all of healthcare. And in that survey, one third of healthcare professionals are seriously considering leaving the profession in the next 12 months. Wow. So no, I don't know how many of them really will, but I think that when you talk, what are the long-term consequences? I think how people respond to this period of disillusionment will be very important. And I think the other factor that goes into it, and I didn't realize this, that I think, I think I'm right about the numbers that 44% of physicians are older than age 55. So I think a lot of people are going to start thinking, hmm, <laughs> maybe I'm just going to retire yep. and not continue to work. Yeah. I think that's when you talk about what are the long-term consequences. I think people leaving healthcare, and we're already seeing that with nurses and respiratory therapists, not just here in the state of Colorado, but across the country. People are People, I've, I've had enough of it. It's not worth it anymore. Hmm. With the concerns about people leaving the healthcare field, does the fact that the CU College of Nursing graduates about 500 nurses annually, does that help or is that just sort of a drop in the bucket? No, absolutely helps. I, I think we always have to worry about our pipelines into whatever profession and making sure we have strong pipelines for nursing physicians, respiratory therapists, speech language pathologists, occupational physical therapists is clearly important. So as we think about how we're going to come out of the pandemic, I think making sure that we maintain those pipelines is important. In addition to that, people that graduate from nursing school can do a lot of different jobs. And I think making sure that some of them are interested in filling the positions that people are leaving. For example, becoming a critical care nurse or an emergency medicine nurse, um, I think would be important. So there's probably a degree of career development counseling that we can do to help people not just graduate from nursing, which is important, but help direct them to the areas of most need. What are some of the signs you're seeing in ICU nurses and others that could mean someone is struggling? How does it present itself? So what's interesting about the symptoms of burnout, it, it comes on slowly and people don't always see that behavior in themselves. The example I give is for those of us that wear glasses or contacts, when, when your vision was going, you kind of didn't realize it because it slowly eroded over time. And then you go to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist and you put on glasses, you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I didn't realize I could see that tree. Um, I didn't know my vision could be that good. 
In the same way with burnout, people often don't see it in themselves, but the consequences or the symptoms of burnout that you'd see are, are, are people lose their temper, um, they're exhausted, they don't want to go to work, they miss days of work, they're very rude to people, they depersonalize, so they um, act like the patient's not a patient, they'll say things like, well, we've got this DKA-er here, and you're like, excuse me, what's the patient's name? That's a person. That's not a just a symptom, as an example. Right. Um, and I understand why people do that. It is a defense mechanism. It's just not the best defense mechanism. Yeah. So um, people are short with each other, rude, yell, aren't invested, and sort of, again, forget that we're, we, we have very important roles as healthcare professionals. Patients entrust us with their health. Family members entrust us to care for someone they've been married to for 30, 40 years or their child or their parent. It's a very important responsibility. I think sometimes we forget that. Absolutely. Well, if a healthcare professional realizes they're struggling, if they do have that self-realization, what should they do? I think one thing we need to do as a system is try to destigmatize this. I don't look at burnout and the other psychological consequences of the work environment as being a mental health issue. I view it as an occupational health issue. Mm. And what I've said is if I'm a lung specialist, so if I saw somebody with a coal miner's pneumoconiosis, lung disease from working in a coal mine, you would never blame that person or say, wow, you're, you're, not, you're not strong enough to do the job. You'd say, this is unfortunately part of their job and we need to protect them better. Right. So I think when you said, what should the person do? I think we as a system first have to really work on destigmatizing this issue. It shouldn't be viewed as a mental health issue. It's really occurs in the best people. It's the ones that, and we've studied this, it's the ones that went into healthcare because they want to help people. That's a risk factor for developing burnout. So number one, destigmatize it. The second part of it is what we need to do as a system is make acknowledging, talking about these issues part of our job. Um, other professions have figured this out, social workers. Um, they have tough jobs too. They talk to people about child abuse and sexual abuse. They have very difficult jobs. They realize that their most precious resource is themselves, and they incorporated training into their education to, to make sure they look out for themselves because they realize if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of my patients. So I think what people need to do is seek out resources. What I'd like to see one day, this is probably in the future, is that if I ran into a, someone I worked with and they said, hey, Mark, do you want to have lunch on Thursday? I'd say, I'd, I'd love to, but um, I'm meeting with my psychologist or my mental health professionalist at that time. And then the person responded to me like, oh, that's awesome. Tell John I'm seeing him on Friday. <laughs> that it's part of what we do. Yep. That it's incorporated into our job. So what should people do? First of all, acknowledge that this is a problem. It's pervasive. We've shown that up to 80% of ICU nurses have symptoms of burnout and other forms of psychological distress. That's an epidemic. Yes. I think the other issue is it's not a one-size-fits-all. So you can't make somebody do mindfulness training. You can't make somebody go exercise. I think you have to individualize the therapy to each person. 
And I think the last thing I would say is that when we focus on individual interventions, it often can be perceived or initiated as blaming the individual. You're not good enough at the job, so you need to go do X. That's not correct. So we have to really be careful how we message this. Um, the other thing is that many of the programs that are rolled out are, are very passive. If you have a problem, then here's somebody you can go talk to. That's a big step for someone to admit they have a problem and all the concerns about confidentiality in the system to actually follow through with that. I think we have to flip it around and say, you have an appointment with someone on Thursday at one o'clock. If you don't want to go, that's fine. But this is part of your job. And we're going to take you out of your clinic responsibilities that afternoon. So it's not something added on to an already longer day. As a little bit of an aside, um, it's, it's an interesting story. One of my colleagues who was the program director for an internal medicine program started to survey the residents to see if they had symptoms of burnout. And the symptoms were prevalent in X number of, of, of the residents. So they came up with a plan to, after a long day at work, to have those people that tested positive for burnout to go talk to somebody after a long day at work. So when they, and again, they were trying to do the right thing, and then they learned in this process, when they resurveyed the residents, no one had burnout. <laughs> oh, okay. Because nobody, didn't people wanna... are like, I'm not telling the truth on this. If I tell the truth, you're going to create more work for me. Right. So after working a 14-hour shift, now I have to go talk to someone. So I think we've learned how to try to implement these programs. It can't be added on to a long day, but then it's sort of a penalty. It, we have to free up people's time and make it part of their job description. So are there specific steps that a colleague, a family member, or you know, loved one can take if they see their loved one who works in the healthcare field what can they do to support that person who they see is struggling? Yeah, a, an interesting story, one of my, of several aha moments about myself. It was a few years ago, my kids were teenagers. It was a Sunday night, and I was starting in the intensive care unit the next morning. And we were having dinner, and my wife turned to my two kids and said, now, just remember, dad's on service tomorrow, and you know how he gets when he's on service. We all have to be very calm around the house for the next week. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they're like, come on, Mark, you know. I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And they're like, you're a different person when you're on service. So I think having those conversations in a positive way, in a supportive way, this is not something that's unusual in healthcare professionals. This is common. As I said, this is part of the job. And it does impact families. If you look at healthcare professionals that are burned out, they have higher rates of problems with relationships, divorce. And there's a survey of 3,500 physicians that asked the question, has your choice of profession negatively impacted your ability to be there for your family? And 55% said yes. Mm. That's not okay. No. That your profession impacts your ability to be a good spouse, a good parent. That's not acceptable. So what can people do? I think, first of all, acknowledge that this is just part of the job. 
I don't think everyone understands it. I think people are much more aware of this. I think this is maybe a little bit of a silver lining of the pandemic where people are aware of these problems more. They're not questioning if it's an issue. It's definitely an issue. And people used to say things like, come on, Mark, you knew what you were getting yourself into. You knew what it was all about. And, and I'm not sure that's true. Or people would also say, kids in underprivileged neighborhoods would change places with you in a second. And I would say, you know what? Kids in underprivileged neighborhoods would change places with somebody who plays for the Denver Broncos, but we give them shoulder pads and helmets. Where are our shoulder pads and helmets? So I think, again, getting back to your question about family, I think acknowledging that's an issue and to some extent realize when Mark is on service, we need to not add additional stress around the household because that's probably not going to be perceived well. Again, not that they should enable behaviors, but I think just acknowledging that that's maybe part of the job description until we fix all this. That's good to know. So you recently held an Ask Me Anything discussion on Reddit, and we will include that Q&A in our show notes. Dozens of people asked about COVID and health worker burnout. Did any of the questions surprise you? I don't think there were any specific questions that surprised me. What was confirming was how passionate people are about this. I mean, there are, as you mentioned at the beginning, there are a lot of people that are suffering. And I think this gave people an outlet, a safe outlet to talk about these issues. So, um, you know, I've been doing research in this area for a while. So Again, as there was nothing that surprised me, but I just I I couldn't believe how many people wrote in questions and how insightful they were, and again how some people are really struggling. Yeah. Well, one participant mentioned imposter syndrome. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Explain what it is and tell us about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a psychologist <laughs> or psychiatrist, so I'll give you a layperson's understanding. I think it's really prevalent in medicine. I think a lot of us suffer from feeling that you're not good enough to be there. I, I think there are clearly times where you start your residency or you start medical school and you look around the room and you're like, wow, these people are really talented. I have no idea how I got in here. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's what imposter syndrome is, that you just feel like you're not good enough to belong and you don't know how you got in and the admissions committee made some mistake or they didn't <laughs> see the flaws that you see in yourself. Yeah, I think it's, and again, I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. I'm probably saying things that are wrong, but yeah. I think it stems from some baseline insecurity. I think we all have insecurities in different areas. I think there are people in medicine, it's my impression, that kind of question themselves and not sure they belong. And in terms of the discussion about COVID, was someone talking about not feeling qualified or up to the task of treating folks? No, my impression of that was just, and again, what's, what's interesting is that prior to the pandemic, I'm a little biased, but I would say wellness or burnout of healthcare professionals was the most important issue in healthcare. Okay. The National Academy of Medicine is all over this. They're putting a lot of resources in trying to address this issue. I think COVID magnified it. So this concept of imposter syndromes, I think always been there, but uh, 
I'm, I, I don't know if it's gotten worse. I think, again, it's that people feel more a little bit more comfortable talking about these things than right. they did in the past. So, so these stories start to come out. Got it. Okay. Well, you lead the Colorado Resiliency Arts Lab, or CORAL, at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about the lab and its focus? Yeah, this has really been a very, very exciting endeavor that I've been fortunate to be a part of. The way it started is the National Endowment of the Arts really was starting to realize that Congress wants facts. They don't want to just say, well, people like to go to the symphony <laughs> or museums are nice or, or whatever it is. If the country's putting money into things, they want to know what the real benefit is. So in a very astute way, the National Endowment of the Arts realized if we take people from the arts community and combine them with researchers, we can develop data that shows that the arts really are beneficial, however you want to define beneficial. That was the concept behind these research labs. So when the request for applications came out, it was sent to me by our, it was sent to everyone by our um, Office of Grants and Contracts. And I saw it, I was like, wow, this like could be a good fit. I don't know anything about arts, but I'm sure there are people around here that do. So I went and talked to a few people and was connected with Catherine Reed, who um, leads the Ponzio Creative Arts Therapy Program at Children's Hospital. They use a lot of creative arts therapy for children with psychological and psychiatric problems. So I went to talk to Catherine and said, what about a, you know working together on this? And she was like, this sounds great. And then I also reached out to Michael Henry, who is the executive director of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Yep. So the three of us together put this application in together and we got the award, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Yeah. And what's really neat is that what the National Endowment of the Arts wants is for us to do the research. And they also are really good at directing us to how to promote what we do. And I think as researchers, you never think about promoting what you do. You publish papers and journals, and that's kind of what you do. <laughs> um, but I think there are other ways of doing that. The other thing that's been fun is that saying you're funded by the National Endowment of the Arts opens up a lot of doors. So you go and you talk to people and like, wow, that's amazing. And I'm like, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but you talk to them, and what I've learned is that there are many people in the arts community in Denver that are very passionate about what they do. They're great people. They're really fun to work with. And they're very passionate about this concept, too, of how we can use the arts, or more specifically, creative arts therapy, to help healthcare professionals with their well-being. I love that. And as a recovering actor, um, yeah, I, this is exciting stuff. Yeah. Are there any innovative outcomes yet that you can talk about? Yeah, so we did a randomized controlled trial where people were randomized to one of four interventions, either a visual arts program, a music program, a dance movement program, or a, a writing program. The reason we had the four different programs, again, if you don't think you're a writer and we put you in a group of writers, it might not work as well. Again, it gets back to you. We have to individualize the therapy or the intervention to what people want. So it's one of those four groups or a control group. The control group was they either filled out the surveys before and after, but there was no 
what we call intention control groups. They didn't go and meet and have a book club or whatever and do something with the same amount of time. But we finished up the study. We enrolled over 150 people in the study, which is what we had planned to do. And when we preliminarily have looked at the results, it seems to be pretty striking how it works. Oh, that's very cool. So it seems like it improves symptoms of anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, burnout syndrome, improves positive thinking, decreases negative thinking. And, and in addition to that, makes healthcare professionals answer a question that they're less likely to leave the profession. Very cool. Yeah. So it's a nice first step. There's additional work we have to do, but uh, but it's pretty seems pretty positive. So we're very enthusiastic about it. Nice. Well, Mark, you are the Roger S. Mitchell Professor of Medicine and head of the Division of Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care Medicine at the CU School of Medicine, which is quite an honor. What can you tell us about this distinction and what it means to you? We have a great pulmonary division here with a very long history of innovative research and innovative patient care and education. I'm biased, but we have one of the top, if not the top pulmonary divisions in the country, if not the world. And the thing I like the most about the division is I like the people. I think you can do any job you want if you like the people you work with. The other thing I like about the people that work in our division is there's a strong sense of humility. I think people do some great stuff. You'd never know it by talking to them in a very positive way. So what's it mean to me to be the head of the division? It, it's, it's just one job of many people that have to help the division move in the right direction. I never thought I would want to be the head of a division. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I, I took the job a few years ago, and I like it more than I thought I would in, <laughs> in a good way. Dealing with the pandemic has clearly been difficult. But again, if you work with great people, then it makes your job very easy. Your research also includes identifying new treatment modalities for patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome and exploring the diagnosis and treatment of neuromuscular dysfunction in critically ill patients who require mechanical ventilation. That's a mouthful. Can you tell us more about all of this sure. in layman's terms? Sure. Thank so you. ARDS, or the acute respiratory distress syndrome, is a acute pulmonary dysfunction. Of interest, the first case report of ARDS was reported by researchers here at the University of Colorado in 1967. Oh, okay. Um, so, so it was sort of discovered or first identified here. What it is is when people get very, very sick, um, whether they get a bad infection, which I'll come back to in a second, or they get into a car accident or other forms of trauma, there's a very thin membrane in your lungs that separates the airspace from where the blood is. That's what your lungs do. The oxygen diffuses across that from the airspace. It's picked up by the blood cells and takes the oxygen to the rest of your body. What ARDS is, is that thin membrane breaks down. So then the airspace starts to be flooded with the fluid um, that's in the capillaries in your blood and the other stuff that's flowing through your veins. And it fills the, the airspaces so that it's hard to breathe. Um, so that's what ARDS is. The best example is COVID 
causes ARDS. Okay. Essentially, when people develop breathing problems, end up on a ventilator, COVID's ARDS. Got it. Um, so there's a nice tie in that way. And if you look at the original report from 1967, several of those patients had viral pneumonias. It wasn't COVID, but it was influenza, et cetera. Right. So that's what ARDS is. Um, it's common, occurs prior to the pandemic, around 200,000 cases per year in the United States. And the mortality is pretty high. It's somewhere in the 30 to 40% range. So 70,000 people or so each year die of ARDS. It's a common reason to be in the intensive care unit. What we study is to try to come up with different therapies to treat patients with ARDS so that their lungs heal better or don't become as damaged. And also to figure out ways that the ventilator does all that it needs to do and doesn't cause any harm to the lungs. So that's a general overview of the ARDS side. The neuromuscular stuff's equally to me as interesting. So when people are in the intensive care unit on a ventilator, maybe with COVID pneumonia or other forms of pneumonia or other catastrophic illnesses, the people that are fortunate enough to get better and survive, their lungs do okay. Um, this is work that Margaret Herridge from the University of Toronto and others really pioneered by following people with ARDS. When you followed people after they left the hospital and asked them what did they complain of, what bothered them, their quality of life, it wasn't their breathing. Oh. It was weakness. Just general Just overall? general muscle weakness. Okay. They couldn't walk stairs. They couldn't oh. carry groceries. They were having problems dressing themselves, etc. ARDS is sort of a systemic disease. And when you have people in the intensive care unit that are critically ill, it's not often just that their lungs are damaged, their kidneys get damaged, their heart might not work as well, they might have some liver dysfunction. Those are all things that are easy to measure in the intensive care unit on blood tests. What people didn't notice is that your muscles and nerves get injured too. So what we're studying there are ways to early identify people with neuromuscular dysfunction in the intensive care unit and then try to identify again therapies that might mitigate them developing the weakness or if they have it how do we get them to recover um, more quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the advances in recent years in treating people with ARDS? Yeah um, the big advances that have happened is number one we weren't supposed to have air blown into our lungs. The way we breathe is we create negative pressure around the lungs and that brings air into it. So ventilators that push air into the lungs, there's no other, there are not other easy ways to do it, can sometimes damage the lungs themselves. So a lot of what we've learned is how to most effectively utilize the ventilator that that doesn't further damage the lungs. One way of doing that is giving people smaller volumes of breaths. The other way to do it, which is interesting and a little hard to explain, but it's common in COVID, is if you, instead of having someone lie on their back, if you flip them over to lie on their stomach, your lungs just hang in your chest cavity a little bit more comfortably mm -hmm. um, and they work better. The way I kind of describe that is if you think of a cheetah, Cheetahs running really quickly. They're sort of have it so that they're essentially lying on their stomach, right? They're running, mm -hmm. but they're not on their back. 
And it's just because, not because, but one one advantage to that is that your lungs just hang better in your chest cavity. Okay. So by doing that to somebody with ARDS, it's called putting them in a prone position um, that decreases the lung injury from the ventilator and has been shown to improve outcomes. So it's interesting, just a simple technique yeah. of having someone lie on their stomach instead of their back can improve outcomes. Well, we have been living in a world defined by COVID for the past two years. Do you feel like things are gradually heading back to normal or the overused phrase, a new normal? Yeah, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Yeah. As I said in the beginning of this podcast, it's the uncertainty that's very difficult. Um, I've talked to John Samet, who's the dean of the School of Public Health and others, and you can find stuff online. Um, the current surge is supposed to um, last until December. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, models are wrong. They could be off by a little bit, but, you know, we're probably going to see patients uh, in the intensive care unit for the next few weeks. After that, I think it's un unknown. What I hope is that at some point, everyone's going to get vaccinated or have been exposed to COVID. Yep. And, and it should run its course at some point. Every time I'm optimistic, I'm sometimes wrong. So uh, I'm going to sort of hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So hope that things are going to get better, but realize that we have to think about staffing models and how to make sure we care for patients effectively. I don't think we know how long this will last for. What can our listeners do to help support healthcare professionals? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. People want to feel appreciated and supported, I think, in anything. Um, and I think um, if you know people that are healthcare professionals, I think just reaching out to them and asking them how you're doing and letting people know you're thinking about them. That's an easy first step and gets back a little bit to those signs in neighborhoods at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, in one sense, I think people feel abandoned and forgotten about because and I understand it. the world wants to get back to, as you said, normal, mm -hmm. um, but in hospitals, we're not quite there yet. So I think just reaching out to people and letting them know you, you care about them and you're thinking about them. And if there are things you can do to help, um, you're happy to do that. Wonderful. So they feel supported. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to cover today that you don't feel that we've covered? No, I just want to thank you for inviting me. I mean, there's a whole group of people that, that are working on this, and I'm privileged to help tell our story. So, no, just thanks for the invitation and for getting the word out about this, this issue. I think it's, I'm biased, but I think it is really important, and I'm concerned about the future. I'm concerned people are going to leave. Yeah. It's a critical issue, and we so appreciate your taking the time, Mark, to talk to us today. Sure. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. See You on the Air is hosted by Emily Davies, produced by Kathy Buten, and recorded and engineered by me, John Arnold. Email us your questions and suggestions at ontheair at cu.edu. We'll see you on the air next time. University of Colorado.